Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the executive director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby. And today we have Mark Rash with us. Mark is a lawyer in computer security and privacy expert and a lawyer in Bethesda, Maryland. He's of counsel with the law firm Corman, Jackson, and Krantz. Mark's also general counsel to the company Threat Intelligence Unit 221B. Mark's career spans more than 35 years of corporate and government cybersecurity, computer privacy, regulatory compliance, computer forensics, and incident response. Earlier in his career, Mark was with the U.S. Department of Justice, where he led the department's efforts to investigate and prosecute cyber and high technology crime, starting with the computer crime unit within the criminal division's fraud section and leading to the creation of the computer crime and intellectual property section of the criminal division today. So Mark has been involved in in various high-profile computer crime prosecutions And he's also a frequent commentator in the media on issues related to information security and privacy and widely published and an adjunct professor at George Washington University School of Law. So Mark, thank you for being with us today. Mark is a a repeat guest. He was with us back in 2022. And so we're glad to have you with us today. We wanna talk about solar winds and let's start off with a quick summary of kind of what happened in the solar winds incident. We don't have to be real technical, but let's just kind of refresh everybody's memory on what happened with that incident. Sure. Uh, and this is based on publicly disclosed information uh, about the solar winds attack. Uh, so we don't have copies of all the forensic reports because they haven't been released yet. But what we know about the solar winds attack is that it was a major disruption to the supply chain and infrastructure related to people who did business with solar winds. And what happened was solar winds pushes out new code like every company does. And that code has a digital signature. That digital signature is what allows third parties who are installing the code to trust that the code has not been compromised. And apparently what happened in the solar winds attack is hackers were able to compromise the update process and inject malicious code into the software updates so that when you updated software thinking that you were updating solar wind software in addition to getting solar wind software you were getting the malicious code um i don't know if they were getting solar winds updates plus malicious code but they were certainly getting malicious code signed with obviously a falsified or compromised private key. That's correct. And you know what was happening is they thought they were updating the solar wind software when they were in fact injecting malicious code into their own systems. Exactly. And they trusted that because the software key matched when they checked that key with the pub their the public key that, that came signed with when they checked it using that, it matched the private key. So there was some compromise in this software signing process. 
That's right. And this is a critical vulnerability. Uh, and it is a vulnerability that exists in a lot of different systems because we rely on the integrity of the public key infrastructure, what's called PKI, in order to trust updates and software. You know, we tell people, never install software from somebody you don't know, never install software from somebody you don't trust. Well, in this case, the software was coming from somebody they knew, somebody that they trusted, SolarWinds, but the software itself had been corrupted, even though it had been properly signed. And it's important to note that SolarWinds is a network monitoring software. So it's it's used by a number of companies who monitor other companies' systems. So when this impacted a company that's monitoring other companies downstream, of course, this could impact them as well. The other thing that's important to note about this attack is that the malware was particularly dangerous. It could disable system services. It could reboot machines, exfiltrate data, execute files, change system configurations, and perform actions usually taken by a highly privileged system administrator. So it was a highly dangerous piece of malware once it got in a system. And it also sort of lurked there for a couple of weeks. And then when it started taking activity, it actually was storing that activity within the SolarWinds software files themselves. So it was very difficult to detect. FireEye was the one that detected the problem because they were also a SolarWinds customer and, and they were attacked. So that's what happened with SolarWinds. And that was in March, June, 2020 timeframe. So Mark, let's go forward now and discuss the recent news just in the past week about the SEC and SolarWinds. What's the Securities and Exchange Commission up to now with respect to SolarWinds? Can you give us an update on that? Sure. So what what SolarWinds in its most recent SEC filing noted that they had received or that not only the company had received, but also that their chief financial officer and their chief information security officer had received what is called a Wells Notice. Uh, that's an indication by the SEC that they are conducting a civil investigation of the company and of the individuals and in contemplation of filing a civil action by the SEC. So it is a significant step, so significant that that step itself uh, was something that uh, SolarWinds felt compelled to uh, put in their quarterly uh, report. So you say it's civil investigation. So these are not criminal. They don't lead to criminal charges from the SEC, right? That's right. The SEC does not have itself the ability to prosecute crimes. The SEC can, can recommend prosecution of securities, violations of security laws to the Justice Department. But this is all a civil matter. So th this can result in fines, suspensions, debarments, things like that. Those are the powers that the SEC has. Well. Isn't it um, rare? I mean, is it unusual for an individual to receive a Wells notice? Ordinarily, when an individual receives a Wells notice, it's because that individual has engaged in some kind of fraudulent activity, either on behalf of or against a company. So the most common times you see Wells notices uh, is when there's insider trading, stock fraud, deliberate mismanagement, deliberate misstating of corporate earnings, embezzlement from the company, treating the company as your personal piggy bank, that kind of stuff. Fraud by the individual, either against the company 
or using the company to commit some some major substantial fraud. It is very rare to see a Wells notice against an individual where what the company did was either assume too much risk or do something wrong in the ordinary course of business. You know, there's a rule called the business judgment rule. And the business judgment rule allows the business to, to operate normally and, and operate within ordinary business judgment. And they can make risky decisions and they can make wrong decisions. And that doesn't make it fraudulent and it doesn't make a fraud against investors and it doesn't make it, you know, uh, an SEC violation. In order for it to be an SEC violation, you have to essentially either deliberately misstate profits or deliberately misstate losses, or deliberately misstate risks. Well, and in some way, breach your fiduciary duty of loyalty or your fiduciary duty of good duty of care. So this is a very significant event for those individuals. Ordinarily, Wells notices are directed at corporations because the corporation is the one that is engaging in the conduct. The time when it's sent to an individual is often when the individual is personally responsible for misstating a corporate profit, directing people to, you know, not disclose something or the like, directing them to to put things off the books, things like that. Mm-hmm. I am aware of no cases in which a uh, uh, an individual has been given a Wells notice by the SEC as a result of a data breach or even as a result of mismanagement with respect to uh, data security. It's a very uncommon event. And I don't know that it's ever happened before. What does it mean for the individuals who receive these notices? So if an individual gets one of these notices... What the SEC is telling them is we are not only contemplating filing a civil action against the corporation, but we are contemplating filing a civil action against you personally. It's a big oh no moment for anybody who receives one of these notices. It absolutely is. The the only thing that could be worse is being notified that you're a target of a criminal investigation. <laughs> this is this is one step below that. Okay. A subject of, but yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's not a good day. It is not a good day uh, to get a well. Well, it's never a good day to get a Wells notice as a company. All right, it is a significant event to get a Wells notice, and you know when you get a Wells notice, the lawyers snap to attention. This really does get their attention, uh, even more so than the filing of a, of a civil claim. You know, when after a data breach, it is very common for civil lawyers to file uh, lawsuits, uh, including SEC uh, lawsuits on behalf of investors. And what will happen after a data breach, and this happened, there were, there were several of them after the Home Depot data breach. There were several of them after the Target data breach, where there's a class action filed on behalf of investors who said, hey, guys, you have been mismanaging the company. You mismanaged cybersecurity risks. If you had, if we had known that you had been mismanaging the risk, we wouldn't have invested. And therefore, this is a form of securities fraud. Well, what they were saying was you didn't you didn't inform us properly. You didn't tell us what you were really doing. You gave us a false picture of your cybersecurity, and we weren't adequately informed to make a decision about our investment in this company. That's right. And there's two ways to do that. 
One way is in inadequately informing investors about the nature of cybersecurity risks to a company. And the second one is inadequately informing investors about security incidents. So basically, you say, not telling them that your cybersecurity is really bad and that an incident could destroy you and is likely to happen. And the second one is not telling investors that you've already had an, a, a major uh, incident uh, and that you're trying to conceal it or cover it up. So let's go full circle now. Um, because all of this is looping back, and I'm sure our audience is thinking the same thing. This is all looping right back to all the concerns with Joe Sullivan and the Uber breach. So it seems like this could have serious ramifications for CISOs and raise questions similar to those we discussed about Joe Sullivan and the Uber breach. Joe, for our listeners, as a reminder, was convicted of misprison of a felony and obstruction of a proceeding. And so now we have a CISO and a CFO not getting a criminal notice or indictment, but certainly a Wells notice from the SEC, which is very serious. So what are your thoughts on this? And what is what kind of ramifications could it have for CISOs? Well, I think the big one here is the concept of individual personal liability for the acts you take as a corporate employee. You know, most of us think, hey, listen, I'm just a cog in this large wheel. I make the best decisions I can, but ultimately the decisions of what to do and what not to do are those of the company. I am not liable for my own decisions, all right? I make recommendations and the like. Well, uh, wait a minute. This is, a, this is not an employee. This is an officer of the company. That's right. Although I must, I must say, the, neither the Wells notice nor the criminal target letter uh, or the, the criminal investigation depend on the status as being an officer of the company. No, but I mean, with, with, it's not like you're just an employee and you're just a, a little cog in the whole works. You are a big cog. You, you know, are a big cog, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're a big part of the operations. And so now here we have a CISO and a CFO who received this Wells notice. So they both know there's a civil investigation looking specifically into what actions they may or may not have taken. But we were very worried about when Sullivan was signaled out. I certainly was in, in my own writings about this was really a failure on the SEC to take an opportunity to recognize a failure of cyber governance. And instead you singled out the CISO. And here they're doing it again. Yes. So in, in, in some respects, what they're doing is they're making the CISO the fall guy. Now, whether that's justified or not, it's going to depend on the facts of each individual case. But yeah, that's clearly what they're doing. So what can CISOs do to avoid these kinds of problems and protect themselves? There's a lot that they need to do. The most important thing is to make sure that they have the authority that they need to make the decisions that they need to make, okay? That's the first thing. So oftentimes what will happen is the CISO will be hired and told this is your responsibility. And they will make recommendations. They will put together a budget. They'll say this is what we need to do to be reasonably secure. And they're not given the power to effectuate what needs to be done. And that puts them in an awful 
position. It's an untenable position where they have civil liability, they have criminal liability, but they don't have the resources to do the things they're supposed to do. So the second thing they need to do is they need to be able to have reporting authority directly to the board of directors. If I have the possibility of going to jail or being civilly liable, I want to make sure that my recommendations aren't just going to management. They're going to the board of directors. Okay. Well, we have had this problem that has not been corrected ever since I started studying the space of cyber governance in 2008, where we have not been able to break this pattern of the CISO reporting to the CIO. And too many times the CIO in those instances says, I will report to the board. So the CISO doesn't directly report to the board. The CIO does. And as we all know, CIOs are not security experts. That's That's right. And unfortunately, neither are boards of directors. So even being able to report to the board of directors is not a panacea because the board of directors is going to ask four questions. One, are we reasonably secure? What's the CISO going to say? He's going to say, yeah, I think we're reasonably secure. Number two, are we as secure as other people in our field? Yeah, probably. Number three, have there been any major incidents that we need to be worried about? No. And number four is, thank you, have a nice day. That's what they're interested in. Well, that's Um, changing. I mean, that's changing because they're not going to be able to just sit there and ask those four questions and get four answers back and and then say, have a nice day. I mean, one of the real problems in this whole space that apparently the SEC doesn't grasp is that risk needs to be spread across an organization. It's a shared risk. And cyber risk is a shared risk. And when you put it all on the back of a CISO, that's wrong. It's against best practices. And it unfairly burdens one person with the risk of the entire company that part of that risk is that their own heads are in the ground. That's absolutely right. And there's, there's a second part of that, which is the flip side of what you just said, is that we look at the CISO as the one responsible for taking on and mitigating risk, which is a thankless job. Because if they do their job really well, their budget is cut and nothing happens, you know? And and instead of looking at uh, a CISO's job as to mitigate and cut risk, it's really to empower everything else that the company does. So if I if I'm a company that sells widgets online, the CISO's job is to make sure that I can sell as many widgets at the best price to the largest customer base. Dot 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 securely. He or she owns the securely part. But that's embedded in that whole thing. So the CISO's job is to make sure that the business operates properly and efficiently and securely. So it's not just to cut out risk. It's really to enable every other part of the enterprise. And those kinds of things are things that boards of directors do understand. They understand profits and losses and contingent liabilities and things like that. Well, I want to talk about the role of the general counsel for a moment. Because, you know, with Joe Sullivan, it was like, where was the general counsel? 
Where was the general counsel throughout this? The general counsel was the one that had the obligation to report sure. the Federal Trade Commission, not Joe Sullivan. And so we have an incident like SolarWinds. And certainly the general counsels know that if they have an incident, they better be at the helm because, you know, we've all preached and the insurance companies have preached, the law firms have preached, conduct your investigations under attorney work product. Have your attorney hire the forensic firm and lead the investigation. Right. And so they're singling out the CFO. And I assume that Maybe there, there. I don't know if there are any insider trading allegations. I haven't heard of that. But they're singling out the CFO and the CISO. And once again, the general counsel is unscathed. Yep. How can you have an incident like this, where you've got the SEC launching an investigation, and either the general counsel wasn't involved at all, which again raises the question: Hey, SEC, are you listening? This is a governance problem. And all of the team should be involved or the general counsel was involved in a very ineffective way and no one's paying attention to what they did. I think here we have to split out the, the, uh, the well, first of all, one thing we don't know about the SEC, Wells Notice, is whether the material thing that they are investigating is that, that SolarWinds was vulnerable to this kind of attack and didn't tell investors. In other words, pre-breach yeah. cybersecurity vulnerabilities, or whether it was in the manner in which they handled the, the response post-breach. It would be unlikely that the lawyers would be involved in the pre-breach problems, you know, the technical issues about digital signatures and things like that. Although they should be available to look at things like contracts and risk assignments and insurance and things like that. But the lawyers probably wouldn't be involved in the pre-breach stuff. But after the breach, you're absolutely right that the uh, the lawyers should be heavily involved. Now, the Supreme Court has substantially weakened the ability of lawyers and clients to yell attorney-client privilege for what the Supreme Court considers to be ordinary business advice. So it's going to be more difficult to cloak a breach investigation with the imprimatur of attorney-client privilege in the future. Certainly, lawyers give specific legal recommendations as a result of a breach, especially about what to disclose and not to disclose and to whom to disclose it. That's probably all going to be covered by privilege. But the forensics report about what happened may or may not be covered by privilege in the future. Well, I want to push back on one thing you said, since we're good at arguing with each other. Sure. Um, about the general counsel wouldn't be involved in pre-breach activities. And I would say at SolarWinds, where it was a software company with network monitoring software that was used on critical infrastructure all across our country and that their clients had multiple clients beneath them, you would think the general counsel would be managing that liability and making sure that the software signature process was buttoned up tight. That is a legal risk. That's a liability risk for sure. And, you know, as, as some experts, Chet Hosmer one has told me, in his companies, they have had a three-person sign-off on software updates just to make sure there was never 
an occasion where a person inside could make a mistake, goof up, or even be nefarious, that three people had to sign up. So I would say, you know, the role, this highlights not only the role of the CISO and the CFO, but again, I want to draw the general counsel into this limelight and say, what were you doing? Now, we don't, as you said, very fairly, we haven't seen the Wells notices and they want, they're they not public. So we don't know what they contain and 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 what they're, they're looking at. We're talking about a, a lot of issues, but I think you and I are both concerned about the same thing, which is you cannot keep piling all this risk on the back of CISOs. You're going to have a very serious problem with people quitting the jobs and not saying, I'm not going to be a CISO. I'm not going to risk my family. I'm not going to risk my security. I'm not going to risk my liberty for this job. And so let's go back to that last question we kind of ran away from, which is what can CISOs do to avoid these kinds of problems? So let's talk about one thing, Mark, is I I mean, a lot of CISOs, when they take their job, they're glad to have the title because a lot of companies you know, are real tight about giving out that CISO title, oh, director of information security or some something. But do they know if they're protected by DNO coverage? They don't. And that's the first thing to make sure is make sure that the O in CISO is a real O. That means that officer, you are an officer of the company. Okay. If you're an officer of the company, you should be covered by DNO policies. But saying you're covered by a DNO policy is Necessary but not sufficient. What does the DNO policy say? What are you covered for? Are you covered for personal liability? Does the DNO policy include a duty to defend? In other words, if you get sued personally or investigated personally, are they going to defend you? Does it have a duty to advance, meaning advance your legal fees? It's great at the end of a case to say, well, here's your legal fees right? Here's your $2 million. But if you can't hire the best lawyers when you're under investigation, we know what the results of that investigation is going to do. You need to have not only the ability to hire your own lawyers, but to have the firm or the insurance company pay for them. Yeah. And make sure that those limits are adequate. So one of the things that I've seen from my own experience is companies have been totally preoccupied with buying cyber insurance. They have not focused on the cyber aspects of DNO coverage. That's right. And one of these shareholder derivative suits, one of these securities class action suits following a major cyber event could easily eat up the legal limit on a DNO policy. So there's the question of, okay, make sure I'm covered under the policy. But by the way, what's the legal limits on the policy? What you want as a CISO is you want two things. You want the corporation to indemnify and hold you harmless, not just against the cost of defending the case, the lawyers and all that stuff. But if there's a judgment, they pay the judgment, not you. Then as a secondary thing, you want to be covered by the DNO policy. So the company has the first duty to pay your bills and expenses. And then the company can get money back from the DNO policy. You want to make that their problem, not yours. Yeah, to the extent the policies are written so that they can work that way, but certainly you want indemnification. And that can take board action. It can take board action that the board will vote that they will cover in excess of the policy. 
and cover li- full liability amounts. That's so right. it becomes a very uncomfortable conversation when a CISO is being hired. Because That's correct. That's, and this should be done when you're being hired. You're absolutely right. Yeah, but then you're saying like, well, so if something screws up, we have some criminal charges, then I want to make sure that you cover me. And, and you know, that employer may be saying, maybe we don't want to hire this person. Well, so- what you should say is you take it as a positive. I'm really encouraged to be an officer of this company and I expect to be treated as an officer of this company. And I want all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of an officer. And so you ask questions like, what is your what is your coverage for DNO? What is your coverage on indemnification? And look at the corporate policies and make sure they extend to the position you're taking. That's right. Make sure that just because you have an O at the end of your title doesn't mean that you're going to be covered by the DNO policy or by any agreements to indemnify and hold harmless. Or that your board and C suite even considers you a peer. That's correct. That's right. That's right. Uh, Well, it's a very risky time for CISOs right now. And I hate it because this is unfair. Um, Well, remember, you also pointed out the criminal case. You cannot indemnify a criminal case. No, you can't. You can pay their legal fees, but if they're convicted, they're going to have to pay the legal fees back again. So, well, and the insurance isn't going to cover criminal behavior. That's right. But it, raises the issue. Again, I mean, I want to, ending on a positive note, saying if you're a CISO now in a company, get a governance structure in place in your organization so you make sure that risk is spread throughout the C-suite and the board and the business units of the company. And everybody's got a responsibility for cyber. Don't let it just hang there and be your risk and hope and pray nothing happens or that you're covered by a DNO policy. That's only one step. But the real step, and CISOs can push this from their own level, is to make sure that C-suites and boards start developing a governance framework and actually get involved in managing cyber risk. I think that's that's the thing they can do broadest and best. And, you know, it's interesting. The SEC has come forward in, in March of this year with a recommendation to what are called market entities uh, that they have somebody who can essentially translate from the C-suite to the board. That, you know, the board is not going to understand the intricacies of cyber risk. They have no particular experience in it. They have no particular expertise. The CISO is not particularly well-versed in how to explain cyber risk from a management standpoint. They're, they're good at dealing with cyber risk and mitigating it and from a business standpoint, but not necessarily from a governance standpoint. So what's happening now is companies are hiring cybersecurity professionals who will act as advisors to the board of directors about what questions the board should be asking and how to interpret the answers that they've been given. Yeah, well, the board should be hiring those people, not the companies. No, the board. This is this is what I meant is the board hiring those people. So that's exactly right. So we'll end focusing on those positive trends that we see, we hope will become, those actions we hope will become trends. And Mark, thank you for sharing your expertise and thoughts on this important topic. We'll stay on top of it with the Wells notices and 
as this develops further in the news and may do a subsequent session. But thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.